0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: A new study released by Pew Research, here it is in a nutshell. See if it sounds like you and your neighborhood. 75% of respondents do not know any of their neighbors in their own immediate neighborhood. That means only 25% know who their neighbors are. 60% admitted never to having spoken to any of their neighbors. And by the way, these studies have been done in urban settings in both uh, um, residential areas as well as uh, condo and apartment living. So, I mean, how do do you walk down the hallway of fellow individuals that live live in the same building and never speak to them? Well, probably easy considering the fact that 46% of the respondents say that when they see a neighbor, they look the other way and 28, almost a third said they would never socialize with a neighbor. It is demonstrative, I think, of a breakdown of community, a breakdown certainly of what used to be the the, the, the close feeling that existed within communities and neighborhoods. And of course, a lot of this raises some serious questions from a spiritual standpoint, and that is to say that If these attitudes in general are indicative of any attitudes within the church in specific, boy, are we in trouble. How do we go about transforming a community for Christ if we're not even willing to look, let alone speak, to our neighbors? Eric Swanson joins us now. You'll recognize perhaps the title of his bestseller, To Transform a City, Whole Church, Whole Gospel, and Whole City. And he joins us now by phone. And Eric, a delight to have you on the program with us.
2: Well, Craig, really the pleasure is mine. How's things out there in the Bay Area?
1: Things are doing good out here in the Bay Area, and um, of course, that's always exciting news because we've had our challenges here down through the years, to be sure. Um, but there is a, there's a sense of God being at foot here. Um, and that is very encouraging. And I think that uh, that heart desire that all of us in the Church have to see God do something special and unique for such a time as this, for this season, for this generation, uh, is important. And as we all look to want to see God to do something, of course, uniquely, he often looks right back at us and says, I've given you the tools, I've given you the resources, now it's time for you to go to work.
2: Well, that uh, you're kind of <laughs> preaching my message there, Craig. I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, sometimes we want to wait for God, and he's already told us what to do. Hey, by the way, I love the statistics. I, I mean, I, I despised them, but I loved you bringing those to the forefront just to, from the Pew Foundation there. Um, you know, as far as the 75% of people don't know their neighbors, and 60% have never spoken to their neighbor, and 28% wouldn't even want to talk to their neighbor.
1: is alarming? Mean, that,
2: yeah, it is. And, you know, you think what the great commandment is, we're to, first of all, love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength.
1: And our no, neighbors as every, ourselves. Yeah,
2: but everyone else is our neighbors. And I think, you know, we somehow get around that and make it a theological truth. You know, this one, one theoretical person will run into one day with a need, but what if Jesus really was talking about, you know, just our actual neighbors, you know, the five to eight people that live right around
1: us? Well, and the odd thing is that that really is the definition of community. And if we look historically at the church, I'm going to pack, uh, of course, a couple of years here now to the first century church. Uh, right. This was something that had its uh, its genesis in a, a quite uniquely a a urban setting. They were big cities. If you read through the New Testament, go through the Book of Acts, you'll see these are these are not little farmlands that they're talking about. They're not rural communities. It essentially found its genesis in big cities, and so I think the observation. Of that commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves was something that that Christ certainly didn't take lightly, and nor should we.
2: Mm, I think it's a great observation. Yeah, you look at you know the um, you know it's, it's a good place to start the conversations in the early church is that um, many of the, the listeners have probably read Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity, and. You know, he attributes it, I think when he began his work, he just studied it as a sociologist, but when he looked at what caused the, the church to grow 40% per decade for the first 300 years, he said it was because Christians really acted counter-culturally to the people around them. And that's actually a good message for today. If 75% of people don't know their neighbors, what a great time for those of us who name the name of Christ and follow Jesus to really become those people that love our neighbors. And he notes that in the first um, in year 160, I think, the, somewhere around the year 250, there were two major plagues that basically wiped out about a third of the population in Europe. And uh, those that had the means would flee the cities as quickly as they could, but the Christians just hunkered down, and they not only took care of each other, but also took care of their neighbors. Hmm. And uh, what the result was that, um, uh, Stark goes on to say that epidemiologists will say that just to give a person food and water, when they're too weak and too sick to feed themselves and uh, or give themselves drink, would reduce the mortality by two thirds, and uh, and so he said basically from a sociological point of view, you know that people would survive, you know that if if you had a Christian neighbor, you'd take care of each other. If if you knew a Christian friend, they'd take care of you, but if you didn't have any Christian associations or friends, you're probably going to die, and so he said with every plague there was a, a just a percentage higher uh, of believers, and it was such a marvel. It's such a and I do say marvelous in the sense that people would marvel over it. It was just a new way of looking at people, this inherent inherent uh value of these of these image bearers
1: well, I think then too, there's also a very distinct and subtle message here that shouldn't be lost on us, and that is the suggestion here that so little is capable of accomplishing so much. We're we're not talking about massive heroic efforts here. We're talking about just almost run-of-the-mill acts of kindness that, in fact, can leave quite a significant impression on someone else, can't it?
2: Yeah. You know, I've got a friend. It's interesting. I've got a friend that lives in Arvada, one of the suburbs of Denver here. And he had probably 20 or 30 pastors meeting, and they invited the mayor in to kind of give him what he called the Nehemiah tour of the city, you know, where, um, and he had to explain what a Nehemiah tour was. And, and uh, But the mayor said, ended his talk after addressing the looking o- going over the needs of the city and all the broken parts of the city. He said, it just occurred to me and my wife as I was driving over here that if we became a community of good neighbors, all the problems that I just mentioned would be solved. And if you pastors could just teach teach us to love our neighbors as ourself, all of our problems will be solved. And so sometimes it's funny, you know, that people outside our community, sometimes outside the people of faith, they can see it clearer than we can. That, um, you know, I think of, when I think of uh, community transformation and city transformation, I think it's two things, Craig. I think it's, it's uh, spiritual transformation and it's societal transformation. And I define spiritual transformation as that an increasing number of people begin loving the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength. But societal transformation really occurs when people begin loving their neighbors as themselves.
1: You know, you mentioned earlier about this notion of, of community transformation, finding a lot of genesis in the church working counterculturally. culturally And when we come back after a brief time out, I want to dive a little bit deeper on that, because it then, of course, suggests that we understand what the culture is, we know how to go about engaging it, and we understand what the the opposite side or the counter-side of the culture ought to be. And sadly... To the greatest degree, we see, and I don't want this to be a blanket accusation against all believers, but there seems to be ever increasingly a willingness to just simply kind of surrender and to embrace the culture as we see it, as opposed to wanting to get in there and to to work um, in such a fashion that we challenge that culture. Of course, that also requires a certain degree of boldness in our faith that maybe is is lacking. If you've just joined the conversation, Eric Swanson with us today, one of his uh, best-selling books. And it's it's almost a handbook when it comes to community transformation, is simply to transform a city, whole church, whole gospel, whole city. We'll take a brief time out come back to more of our dialogue as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: And back to our conversation with Eric Swanson. We're talking about community and city transformation. You mentioned prior to the break, Eric, one of these keys, this notion of of seeing this transformation come about in part because the church is willing to engage in some counterculture activity. And yet I wonder in this day and age, more often than not, we either run from the culture because we're afraid of it, we don't understand it, so we hide from it, or we're so inclined to just give up easily that we end up embracing the culture so much so that oftentimes it's different to it's difficult to distinguish between pop culture and the church itself which kind of makes that whole set apart business a bit difficult doesn't it
2: yeah you know i think the i think probably craig i'd take the conversation back even a little further i think i think what christians need i think sometimes we're too much you know we're backing up on our heels we're on our defensive and and um instead i think we need to really understand that when we talk about transformation, it is such a positive thing. You know, really what we're talking about is, is helping, we talk about spiritual and societal transformation, it's helping, um, helping people to live a life as God intended life to be lived. And to me, life is always so attractive, it's always so winsome when, it, when it's really done right. You know, I think people are repulsed by self-righteousness and hypocrisy and know it all but they really embrace they they really are drawn to light into into uh into the genuineness of the gospel and um you know and, and at, at least if we know we 're being rejected we 're being rejected for um, because we 've tried to love because we 've tried to um, uh, you know help people take that step towards christ you know I think of um, uh, you know when you think of life as God intended it I go back to isaiah sixty five where when God has to ch- has a chance to build a city from scratch, it's called the New Jerusalem. He describes some come outward workings of that city, and he says the place where uh, infants don't die—you know, the, the child mortality rate is is, is zero. He says the place that people live very long and productive lives; that if a man dies at 100, he's still considered young. He says that he's uh it's a it's a place where people are. Are fulfilled by the work of their hand. It says that, you know, in other words, there's employment and people are gainfully employed. It's a place where um, people dwell together in generations, that the family structure is intact. Um, and it's a place where rapid answers of prayer, and it's a place where the, the wolf flies down with the lamb. There's an absence of violence. So when we're talking about people that life has got created in a city or a community, that's a, that's a very attractive picture. Um, back several years ago, we would, as a group of pastors here in, in Boulder, Colorado, We'd invite um, city officials to come in, um, the mayor and the chief of police and the chief of the fire department and the president of the university and um, district uh, attorney and and, um, superintendents of schools. And we always had three questions for them. The first one was, what's your vision of a great city? And when these people describe to the person the kind of city they wanted to be part of, it's a city that you'd be proud to raise your family in, apart from the spiritual aspect. Um, none of them said we need more churches. None of them said we need more people that are Christ followers. But when they described the physical makeup of a city, um, that's they described. And then the second question, by the way, was what is your job? Uh, what do you do? And then what does your job require you to do that no person can do for, do for you? And those became prayer requests. Mm. And it was real interesting that even, even people – I remember one guy with tears coming down his face. He said, you know, I know people have prayed for me because they told me. He said, but I've never, ever heard anyone pray for me out loud. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's like, you know, I think Jesus' default towards people, he said, when you, when he sent the, the 12 and the 70 out, he said, when you enter into, a, enter, enter into a house, give it your blessing. Um, you know, and our default um, it, that should be a winsomeness and a, a, a love towards all people you know, we didn't, he, didn't check, he didn't say, go first go check their credentials to see if they're worthy of love. He just said, be, be extravagant in your Well, own and,
1: and this really then demands a different way of engaging the culture then. And, and I say that because historically, at least over the period of, say, the 1970s, late 70s, yeah. 1980s, there was a, a tremendous movement within certainly the evangelical branch of the church that said, we need to engage the culture and we need to stand up, we need to take a position. We got very engaged from a political level and there was much uh, uh, you know, banging of potlids together, and we made all kinds of noise. And then many would argue that at the end of the day, we really didn't affect much change at all, except that many people in the communities around us could now, for the first time, readily articulate what it, uh, what it was that the church was against. And you could right. talk to almost yeah. any individual and say, well, what are, what are Christians against? And they could go off the laundry list. And then if you ask the question, well, what are Christians for? they would stare back at you with a blank stare. And so it it, it sounds like what you're talking about here is sort of the, the woman at the well engagement. You know, yeah. Jesus knew what the score was. He knew what was going on, but he didn't spend a lot of time calling out her sin or browbeating her to death, but rather immediately spun and focused on the restorative side of the gospel message, which, let's face it, looking at what's going on in the world around us today, if there was ever a time when the church needed to engage in helping the world around us transform and and, and experience restoration, it's now.
2: I'll tell you, Craig, that's a tremendous insight there, because I I think just the way you articulated it, I think what you say over the last 30 years, we've done a great job communicating what the church is against. I mean, to the very fact that when people are surveyed, they can name all the things we've been against. Isn't that right? Mm-hmm. And so as far as knowing how to communicate a message, I think we ought to give ourselves an A-plus for that. Now it's the time to say, was that the right message? You know, It's like Einstein said, you know, that his definition of insanity was doing the same thing over and over again, expecting to get different results. And, uh, you know, I think, I think when we talk about, too, about transformation, Craig, I think it's that the first half, there's some outward structure of what a healthy city looks like. By the way, those overlay very nicely with, um, there's been studies done 11 characteristics of healthy cities, and they're basically the same, same, same things out of Isaiah 65. If you look at the UN millennial goals, they're, they're, you, could put, you, could, you could almost adopt Isaiah 65 for those same ones. But Jesus also had a different agenda for the city. You know, the, the one time he spoke to a city... A city in its entirety, you know. He said, "Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you together, as a hen under my, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings." But you were unwilling. So when we think of transformation, the, the societal transformation is Isaiah 65, but the spiritual transformation is people being reconciled to God through Jesus. And so, so we should ought not ever, as as followers of Christ and as the church, we can never lose sight of that. We kind of have a, a dual fold mission, helping. You know, um, helping redeem, helping you know, because I really believe that Jesus when he died on the cross died to restore everything that sin took away from us. Uh, you know, that um, you know, not just our relationship with God but our relationship with self. We have broken people and relationships are broken and and uh, you know, that that he even says the earth itself is groaning, waiting for the waiting for the redemption to be revealed, you know. And so when you think of all the problems that our world's facing, that God invites us to co-labor with him in that restoration. And I think we have to live with the fact that some believers are going to be passionate about, um, you know, reconciling people to God, and they're called evangelists, and we need more and more of them. We need people to be sharing their faith. But other people will be about making people's lives whole and making relationships better, and they'll want to restore marriages, and they'll to want to work with foster kids, and they're going to want to work with adoption and things like that.
1: But at the end of the day, Eric, isn't that all part of the same message? I mean, we, we, yes, certainly, first and foremost... Christ died, that we might, through his substitutionary work, Absolutely. receive forgiveness, be reconciled unto the Father, forgiven of our sins, and and engage in relationship with him. Yes. But then, as you see throughout his earthly ministry, there are so many aspects where he demonstrates uh, his His passion for us and our brokenness, and wanting to see us whole in so many ways. So, in my mind, to a degree, it's almost like uh, different sides of the same coin, aren't they?
2: I think that's exactly right. You know, the the you know, I think we fall off into into one ditch or the other. When Jesus, though, when I think when Peter had a chance to describe the ministry of Jesus in Acts ten, the first time to a group of Gentiles in the household of Cornelius, you might remember the passage. But in, in kind of a nutshell, he said that God preached the good news through Jesus, and Jesus, anointed with the Holy Spirit, went about doing good. You know, and you have that that wonderful combinations like I think you put it very well, Craig. The two sides of the same coin. One is you know, one is words, the other one is works. And, um, you know, the, the deeds of love and, and the words of, of salvation. Um, I remember reading a few years ago, somebody said that, you know, that Jesus' ministry it was always that dual ministry. He said, because, he said, it's the, it's the deeds that verify the words. So when Jesus said, how do you know these things? Go back and tell John what you've seen and heard. You know, the, the deaf hear and the blind see and the lame walk. He said that it's the deeds that validate the message of the words. But also you need words to clarify the message of the deed.
1: Well, at the end of the day, when we we talk about him making the observation that, that we will be known by our love... Again, there's got to be a manner in which that can be demonstrated that others might look and see and be able to recognize at the end of the day, certainly, what the, what the genesis is, what's the driving force behind the reason why we love and how we love, and that is this wonderful relationship with Jesus Christ. A lot of us, though, seem to want to engage in the relationship. We want to experience the forgiveness and stop there. And just sort of bask in all the wonder of that. And I, want, I don't want to make any listener think I'm in any wise uh, trying to diminish the wonder of salvation. But the problem is we, we experience that, and then it's almost as if we want to keep it for ourselves and, and, and tuck it in and hide it away from the rest of the world. And, and when we do that, it's just another way, I think, of demonstrating to the world another sense of another way in which they feel as if they have they've, uh, failed them.
2: I think, that's, I think that's so true, you know, and, and again, I'm, as you're speaking, I, I couldn't help but think of, uh, you know, Matthew 22, where it's the second part of the great commandment, that you've got to love your neighbor as yourself, and when you think of what we've done for ourselves, we have embraced Jesus Christ as our Savior, and Christ's come into our life, and he's changed our life, and he's working on us, and giving us the kind of relationships that are ultimately satisfying, not only with himself, but with the people around us.
1: No, you know, we we started this week on a very dour note with news of Robin Williams passing, Uh and it hit the Bay Area, I think, in a more profound fashion since he's from the Bay Area. A lot of people have rubbed shoulders with him and and have met him or known him. And, and, you know, we look at the tragedy of that, and uh, I think it... uh, Uh, while we may never have answers, I think it, it, it should give rise to some important questions, particularly from a Christian perspective, and that is, how many Robin Williams do we know right now that we live next door to? that may likewise be battling the same demons of either drug abuse or or depression. I hear today that um, he was facing a diagnosis of Parkinson's that can be absolutely devastating and and so overwhelming that sometimes individuals apart from Christ feel as if the only other answer to w- what they're facing is escapism of, of this side of the realm. How many of us Know people like that and yet are unawares, have neighbors that are in that exact same position and yet we don't even talk to them to know these things, and how different the world might be as much as how different things could be that Robin might still be with us, had someone in the sphere of influence or contact with him taken the moment to pray for this man or to minister this man or at least hear him out. You just I think you can't help but wonder those kinds of questions.
2: Yeah, you know, I had the same conversation with somebody today, Craig, cause, yeah, actually because Robin Williams has a tie here to Boulder with uh, Mork and Mindy. At, uh, the TV house is about mm, less than six blocks from where I'm sitting now in Boulder. Mm. And after this conversation, I'm going to go by there, and, and, uh, and uh, I know people are putting up pictures and, and memorabilia and things like that. But, um, you know, he was such a beloved guy, and who had ever thought from his public persona the pain that he was feeling. I, I like sometimes, with my especially with my secular friends, I'll, I'll quote Plato, and he, Plato said this, that everyone you meet is fighting a battle. Be kind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think of these statistics, I've written them down in front of me, what you said there, but, you know, the Christians could make a, a, uh, an unbelievable difference if they lived differently simply by um, uh, just following the research that Robert Putnam brought forth. He was the author of Bowling Alone, but he said just knowing your neighbor's names makes all the difference. He said, you give two neighborhoods with the same socioeconomic um, level, the same uh, racial ethnicity, um, you know, just basically the same amount of education. He said, people that simply do one thing, they know their neighbor's names have less crime, less, less teen pregnancy, less drug use, less incarceration. All the social factors just come from doing that. And, you know, if there really are, you know, Thirty-five percent to fifty percent to all the people that name the name of Christ. If they just knew the three people across the street or across the 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 apartment across from the you know the ones directly across and left and the right, and then the people on either side of them, and just made themselves just were friends because you know so much of evangelism happens um, if if we don't know our neighbors' names, we take ourselves out of the game. But if we do, and we don't avoid them, we, we, we have eye contact, and we've, we've made a point to, to write down their names after they gave them to us, and maybe the names of their kids and some of the things they're interested in, then it's like when, when the God called Philip to talk to the Ethiopian eunuch, it was just at that right time, that right, that right moment of spiritual openness when he was reading the book of Isaiah, that God intersected his life with Philip made all the difference.
1: Well, and you know, the Lord can use any of us to be that that means by which that intersection takes place. We have countless other examples all around us in the news every day. People have the sense that institutions are failing us. Government is failing us, education, healthcare, the media, even the church. What can we do to transform that impression? We're talking about transformation today, and on the line, we have the privilege of having Eric Swanson with us. We're going to ask him to stay for a few more minutes as we continue this dialogue. We'll talk, too, about this notion as we, as we desire to see community transformation. Doesn't that most necessarily need to begin with a transformation in my own heart and life? We'll talk about that next as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Community Transformation, City Transformation, the topic of our discussion today with Eric Swanson. His book, by the way, co-authored with Sam Williams, is called To Transform a City. Is it still available in print? Can folks still get it on Amazon, Eric?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Amazon's probably the best place to get it. And, uh, uh, you know, like you said, I think it's a good primer for understanding cities and what God wants to do in cities and how, you know, people in every domain, public, private, and and uh and social can be involved in
1: transformation. And isn't this really an amazing juncture we have? I mean, the the tragedy of what's been unfolding in Ferguson notwithstanding, you look at the fact that so many people today look at many of the institutions that historically we put our faith and confidence in, government education, the media, so on and so forth, all of these to one degree or another seem to have failed us, and yet now with people just, I think, Utterly with this sense of distrust and uh, disillusionment that we as the church could come along and be able, not pushing an organization per se, but rather relationship and talk about who Christ is and what he came to do and start by demonstratively showing the love of Christ in, in the ver- diverse ways yeah. in which we've spoken about today. I- isn't it a time as which it almost seems ripe for this? Yeah, and it's almost like, you know, what's happening in Ferguson, there,
2: what happens in times of tragedy, I remember um, the first book I had the privilege of co-authoring was with a friend of mine, Rick Russo, who's a local pastor here up in the city of Longmont. And Rick was saying that he, said, um, that, he said, when we met him, he said last year, so this has been 15 years ago now, he said there was a kid at a local public high school that committed suicide. And he said, the principal, who wasn't a believer, called him up and said, can you send over 20 grief counselors because our kids are falling apart? And, and she said, you can pray with them. You can you know, tell them about Jesus. and We give you kind of three days of unfettered access to our students because we really need your help. And so some other pastors were sitting there, and they said, well, how do you get pu- such access to a public high school? Then, then, uh, you know, w- when we try to get involved, they shut us out. And he said, well, it's pretty easy. I just sent the same 20 people we've been sending over there to – set up chairs at high school assemblies and to, you know, rake at the long jump pits at the at the track meets and then chaperone the high school dances. There was a relationship there, wasn't yeah, was, there? The relationship was there. So we can't, if we wait for a tragedy to happen because we don't have a trusted relationship, then when something does happen and we haven't had a relationship, it's hard to get involved.
1: Well, and if you just suddenly swoop in, they, they're immediately yeah. going to be suspect and say, okay, what do you want?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's just the nature of people, you know, it's, it's, it's like, but when you're in a relationship with people, if we, if, you know, if Craig, we lived in the same town, we were neighbors, and we hung out together, and something happened, you said, how can I help? I would not hesitate in a heartbeat to tell you what I needed. But if a stranger came up, I, you know, it would just be, it would just be, it's just a way, I, you know, I've got to vet you first. I've got to figure out what your motives are. And, well, why have you ignored me for all these years, and now you want to get involved? You know, it's just, so the time, you know, it's, it's like, it's like, like there's a Chinese proverb that says, you know, the best time to plant a tree is 10 years ago. But the second best time to plan it is today. Mm-hmm. And so no matter how we might have neglected our schools, or our government officials, or those people that, you know, and you know as well as I do, Craig, there are a lot of them that are, they're not in it for the ego. They're, they really care about community and want to make a difference. So they run for city council, they get on the school board. And, and uh, you know, I think it's okay to tell them as Christ followers that we are praying, you know, for them. And, and, and identifying and, and that with the, how hard those jobs are and, and, and thanking them. And I'll tell you, that's where a lot of traction around the country is happening, is that, that churches are just, um, are just serving um, the schools. You know, well, personally.
1: and not just to say, you know, we're praying yeah. for you, but also to say, what it's, can we do to help?
2: Exactly. And, and isn't it easy how to say, you know, go in peace, be warm, be filled? without doing anything. And I think that magic question is the Jesus question, what do you want me to do for you? How can I help? And and if you're in a relationship, and sometimes, you know, as we got involved in our school and things like that here, you know, it was just sort of like, well, we don't want you, you know, it was was very tenuous, but as we kind of, uh, you know, proved ourselves that we weren't, you know, we weren't going to, you know, overwhelm them. That uh, more and more there was a trusted relationship built. So now the churches here in, in this area have many, many, many strong permanent relationships, not only with the institutions, but with the individuals who run those institutions.
1: You know, and the operative word here through all of this seems to be, Eric, the word relationship. I yeah. mean, and, it, and, it's, and it's interesting because we as Christians, if we're called upon to articulate the gospel message, we'll speak about the relationship uh, that God wants to have with his creation and, you know, sending his son to die on the cross, there might be restoration because God wants relationship. And we do this all in the context that is completely void of any sort of one-on-one relationship. And so isn't it normal for the non-believer to look at us and say, wait a minute, you're so hyped up about your relationship with God and you want God to have a relationship with me and vice versa, and yet you and I don't have a relationship? How can I have a relationship with someone that I can't even see when the person I can see won't take the time to even say hello to me or look me in the eye when they cross the street?
2: Isn't isn't that exactly Jesus is apologetic? If you do not believe earthly things <laughs> that are true, how can you ever believe heavenly things? I, and I think he was stating it: if they can't see, you know, if if they can't see it in real life, you know, I, 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 I think it's interesting that that even non-believers, those outside the church, often understand the gospel more than we do. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes when you see believers getting involved and churches getting involved, the kind of the reaction from the community is. If they're honest, they just say, hey, it's about time. This is what I thought Christians were supposed to be doing all along.
1: Well, the interesting thing is we'll also talk, too, a lot about kingdom building, and yet it seems as if we don't understand the concept of kingdom modeling, do we? Well,
2: that's a good point. You
1: know, I think, too, Craig,
2: one of the things that, that, that's helped me a lot, you know, I think, um, you know, if, if we can kind of think, when we look at people that are, that are involved in God's redemptive work, even if they don't know him, at this time, you know, sometimes we think, well, all these people that are doing good in the world, they're trying to work their way to heaven. But what if God had planted in them something an idea that something was broken, and he's calling them even to be part of that redemption even before he redeemed them? You know, and so evangelism then becomes connecting a person's small story. Most people don't know why they want to want They're passionate about what they do. You know, even the most ardent evolutionists, when you talk about trafficking, and I know that's a big deal out in the Bay Area, and many churches are taking on a campaign. It's called uh, "Not in My Town," but with trafficking, they they'll, they'll no evolutionists will say, "Well, it's kind of sad what's happened to those young girls," but. You know that's just the way that that the weak are called out in our society. No, they'd say they'll they'll go back to kind of a Garden of Eden statement. They'll say it doesn't seem right, you know, that a 13-year-old girl will get drugged, raped, and kept in a drug state so men can make money off her, and that's why I'm involved in this trafficking effort. You know, so, so it's almost like what if we could tap into that that sense of Justice that they have, and tie that in. Why do you feel that way? And that's the kind of conversation I like having with
1: people. Well, and the amazing and, thing, particularly in a region like the San Francisco Bay Area, as you well know, there is such a deep vein uh, that that resides in here of the desire to want to be do good and be engaged and and be invo- involved involved in in transformative processes. Now, albeit it might look different than than a lot of us that have a biblical uh, perspective, you know, they they want to save whales, we're trying to save babies, whatever the case might be. But it's all part of God's kingdom. And there is that tremendous resource that kind of just, again, just down below the surface that if we could learn how to tap into that vein, uh, could give us tremendous entree to not only uh, get permission to 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 share with these individuals, but also see the manner and fashion in which God might, God might very well have called them to do amazing and marvelous work if we could just somehow be able to, to speak truth and life. And uh, and allow the Holy Spirit to work in that fashion.
2: Oh, Craig! I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, that's a, that's that's I couldn't have said it better. I don't know anyone who says just said as well as you just did, because I do think it's it's if if we can see people, you know, they part of, they're grasping part of this big story, you know, um, and and we have the privilege, you know. I think if I, if I had to write the book over again, if we do another edition of it. I might add one more thing. You know, the, the the subtitle of the book is is the whole church, and that's not going to include every church, but it can't exclude any any church, any Christ followers, taking the whole gospel word and word indeed to the whole city, every sector, public, private, social, and then every domain, every all the business and education. The one thing I'd add to that, though, is that is the whole church taking the whole gospel of the whole person in the whole city. Mm. And what I mean by that is that you know sometimes we've really been operational Gnostics in the sense that the only thing we've valued about people is their soul, and that was wasn't that the heresy of the first century of Gnosticism, you know we deny the material and just it's the souls that are important. But if, what if it was you know that 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 we that again there's some some believers some Christ followers that be passionate about helping people with their physical needs. Um, the body, then soul, the emotional, intellectual, the desire for beauty, the desire for relationships and marriage, and then, then the whole spirit, you know, the, connecting people with God. But it's like, if we have that approach and we see people in that, in that holistic way, then it almost creates a path for conversation that, that, that lead to Jesus. In other words, we start with the external, the physical, then take it to the internal, and then move to the eternal, How's it going? it's oh, really bad at work. You know, somebody took credit from my work. They got a promotion to the internal. How does that make you feel? You know, it must really, it must feel awful, you know, identifying that emotional level. But then we have something else that other people don't have, and that is we can offer to pray for people. If people are kind of on a God journey, what do you think God might be doing here? Uh, what do you hear him saying to you, you know? And, and uh, again, if we can see people the way God sees them in that in that body, soul, and spirit thing, I think we have many more entry points into a person's life.
1: Absolutely so. And, you know, the notion of world transformation that uh, precedes, or follows, rather, uh, a nation transformation, community transformation, it all begins with one important transformation, and that is individual transformation. That's right. And yet, the individual that needs to transform, I think, in this case, in order to be the catalyst to see this begin to happen in a real, tangible, and significant significant fashion is not the sinner out there in the street and the drunk in the corner and the guy that's without God. It, it's it's you and me, isn't it? And we're going to talk about that in a final segment here. We are privileged to have Eric Swanson on the phone tonight. We're going to take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation to transform a city as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Back to the conversation tonight with Eric Swanson. Eric, before we get some closing comments from you, I want to have you um, share with our listeners an observation you share in the early pages of To Transform a City. You talk about Calvary Bible Church. Um, that um, gathered together, not a significant group of people. It was about 100, uh, if recollection serves me. And the pastor got up on a Sunday morning and said, I'm going to give each of you, as you come up to uh, the pulpit here, a crisp, clean $100 bill. Take this, use it as seed money to go out and do something transformative. How did all that play out?
2: Hmm. Actually, that was a phenomenal story. This is when we first started getting involved in serving our community. And, uh, you know, some people were just he – actually, he didn't tell them, come up and get a $100 bill. He said, make a commitment to – he said, I'm going to have a challenge for you. And for some of you, this will be the most significant thing you've ever done. And I want you to come up and, you know, line up and do it. And then he gave up $100 bills, about 50 in each service. And uh, for some people, they just stood there because the one guy, I remember, he was an investment uh, banker, and he said, this is the heaviest $100 I've ever held in my hand. <laughs> and uh, he was just kind of stunned. Um, the best story we had, though, was from a kid that was 11 years old, and he said, you know, I think he had to be, I think, 16 or 18 to get the $100. But he said, how about just up and give me a dollar? And so the pastor gave him a dollar, and he went out and he created flyers and then handed them out in his neighborhood about um, a, a, a neighborhood about him doing willingness to do yard work that summer. And I think, I forget how much he he turned that dollar, I think, into $168 and then gave it to i can 't remember what organizations they gave it to, but they 're organizations that serve the poor in our community and I would say that kid 's life he 's just going off to college this year will never be the same because he saw God use them in a mighty way, and we had some other great stories too people uh, you know they 're told to multiply that money and give it to something that God cares about in the community, so it was very much wide open. We had a couple other challenges after that then too. Then we asked people to give of their of their uh, of their treasure that sell something of theirs that they valued. I remember one guy, uh, you know, flat-screen TVs were just coming in, and, and he walked in, and he said, this is it, and he sold that. And, and then they brought the money to the church, and I think we collected about 80000 from that, and then we gave it to three organizations that serve the poor. And then the last challenge was to give um, 90 minutes of time to, over the next 90 days to one of the human service organizations. You know, believing that if something good already exists through God's common grace, like a food bank or a homeless shelter, we don't need to start the Christian version of it. You know that that uh, that we can we can partner with anybody that's morally positive and spiritually neutral. So that was that was a great adventure. That was a great time for life for church.
1: So so much of that community uh, transformation, as you're suggesting, though, really really begins the really um, sort of um, the seed of it, the genesis of it, is with individual transformation, isn't yes, it? Yes. Uh
2: huh. Yeah. You know, I I had a privilege of doing a lot of study under a guy named Ray Bach and I Ray I think is the foremost urban missiologist, but Ray says, as I said, cities are transformed by people who themselves have been transformed. And I think one of the one of the things that's happening today, Craig, and I think you've expressed it very well, is that people are moving from um, thinking about the church to thinking about the kingdom. And when you start thinking about the kingdom, you know, life as God intended it, then your playground becomes the community, it becomes your city. It's, it's no longer, the church is almost too small. Um... But but I think what happens is I, it's a good illustration of what transformation means because what we're talking about is not a utopia, you know. Until Christ comes back and makes all things new in Revelation 21:1, there's there's um,
1: still it's, a fallen world, isn't it?
2: It's still a fallen world. But can there be pockets of our community? When we want to say, what does it look like? What does life look like? The way God intended to be, there ought to be some like almost like the Baskin Robbins sample spoons. You get to sample the kingdom all around. What well, I think this like? goes
1: back to my point earlier about we focus a lot or talk about building the kingdom, mm-hmm. and if we would just model some of the kingdom again, not utopia building no. by any means, but recognize there's a degree to which we can, as the church, do this right here on earth.
2: That's exactly right. You know, just it looks like we're running out of time, Craig. But I know that I just want to say some, something about the Bay Area is the Bay Area. You know, if we just continue the way we have been, we're going to miss so many opportunities. In the Bay Area, there's 5 million people that, when, when it comes to identifying with one of the 236 uh, identified religious organizations, they check none of them. 5 hmm. million people. There's 50. I was reading a Bloomberg report about uh, uh, Silicon Valley, and 51% of the Valley's population speaks a language other than English in their home. You know, and so sometimes when we think about the Great Commission and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, what if at this point in history, where more people now live in urban areas than rural areas, that God is bringing the people of the world and the cities of the world according to Acts 17, that they might seek him and find him because he's not far from him. Isn't that
1: amazing that we have such a unique and rare privilege? And I don't say that just as a lifelong uh, Bayerian, there's certainly a sense of pride in that, but that, you know, for so many decades we, we were mission sending and we went out and we sent people to other lands to share the gospel. And now, amazingly, God has seen fit to bring the people of the other lands and other tribes and tongues here to us. Wow.
2: Let me say one more thing, Craig. I got—I I have to say this. You know, I came to faith at, at Cal Berkeley uh, my freshman year back in 1968, and so the Bay Area has a has a real fond spot in my heart. And so I want to give a shout out too to my friends that are out there that are are really making a difference in the community. Well,
1: that's fantastic. And Eric, let me just say, hey, anytime you happen to be over here for a visit, I don't know if you ever get out to California, uh, to God's country, from God's country there in Colorado, uh, you got a platform, brother, because I love what you have to share. I love your heartbeat. And anytime you want to be on the radio or you're coming to town, you just send a note to my producer and say, I'm coming to town, and we'll, we will clear out as much time on this program for you as we need if you've got something on your heart you want to share.
2: That's amazingly kind, and I actually might take you up on that. I'll
1: i, I, I will hold you to it. Thanks so much for the time, Eric. Again, the book is called To Transform a City, available through the usual suspects as well as through Amazon.com, authored by Eric Swanson. His website, by the way, you can check it out, EricJSwanson.com.
0: Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group, all rights reserved